This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. MMA coach Justin Hamilton is back to do a UFC fight study with us. Hi, Justin. How's it going? So we are breaking down and studying UFC fight night Till versus Masvidal. So what we'll do is break down and kind of explain to you what we saw in the basically the three headliner fights. And we'll start with the main event, Darren Till versus Jorge Masvidal, which ended with Masvidal knocking out Darren Till in round two. So Justin, what did you think about Darren Till in this fight? So Darren Till does uh, you know, a lot of things well, obviously, and he does two things exceptionally well, in my opinion. Um, and they both start with his heavy pressure. So he really likes to pressure people very, very aggressively. And he'll either use his pressure to off-balance people, which he did um, in the opening exchange with Masvidal, well, I, I guess the opening exchange, Masvidal ran across the cage and he landed a low, bro- low blow, right? But um, as soon as uh, they engaged right there, the first punch Till actually threw, I believe, is what dropped Masvidal. And he did so because he likes to put so much pressure on people that he forces very quick reactions out of them. In, in this particular case, um, he forced Masvidal to move his feet very quickly, I think kind of got him crossed up a little bit. Um, and so he was able to knock him down. Now, it, the punch did seem to land cleanly, but I think it was also because he had off-balanced him and, uh, you know, Masvidal recovered rather quickly. But that is something Till, I think, does very, very well is he applies really heavy pressure, uses it to off-balance his opponents. And because he has such exceptional reach, he can then land while in, in range. The second thing he does very well is when his opponents um, try, to, uh, try to counter he backs them up, pressures them to force a reaction out of them. And when they react, he likes to essentially pull his head back and counter. So sometimes he'll you know, take a step with his left leg, catch an angle there, and look for that big left hand. And so both the things that he does particularly well, in my opinion, come from that heavy pressure, either using it to off-balance his opponents or force a reaction out of his opponents, at which point he'll counter. So he was clearly looking for that and in the opening exchange did it very, very well and dropped Masvidal. Over time, what Masvidal started to do was when he would get backed up, he would plant his feet and he would counter very aggressively, but he would do so in combination. So whereas Till generally likes to you know, uh, pull his head back and then counter, Masvidal didn't really give him that opportunity because he would counter with his own combinations and eventually started to catch him. What do you think is the secret to Darren Till's pressure? Because he's not a high volume fighter, right? He's pressuring you, but he doesn't throw a lot of punches. So, which is very interesting because he's not throwing much at you, but he's backing people up. Yeah. So that, that was actually one of the notes I had for something that he could have done better is, is more volume to your point. Um, and that is a pattern we see with Till. He doesn't often throw so many strikes, but I think the sheer presence of his size definitely lends itself to, you know, uh, being effective with his pressure. I think people feel very quickly just how big he is when, when he, does confront them like that. 
Um, his striking, I think, resembles very closely Connor's style in that, you know, you have another southpaw fighter, applies heavy, heavy pressure. So even, for instance, in in the McGregor versus Alvarez fight, you know, Eddie Alvarez, you know, definitely talked a big game going into that fight. And then as soon as Connor ran across the cage and, and you know, applied that pressure, you saw Eddie Alvarez start to back up. And so Till is very, very good at this as well. Um, so to me, it's more so, I guess, um, you know, his his clear reputation for having such power, people are just forced to respect it. They have to recognize, you know, I, I don't want to get hit with this big left hand. So because of that, his earlier success in, in previous fights manifests in these fights now because people have to respect that. So it's really not even anything he's he's doing other than just applying the pressure and people are kind of forced to back up. So you already kind of mentioned one thing with the volume. What do you think were some of the weaknesses of Darren Till in this fight? Yeah, so the volume, I think, is the biggest thing. And he didn't really have an answer for when Jorge um, was countering. Once when he would plant his feet, like I said, and would counter a combination, Jorge just looked, he looked zoned in. Uh, he looked really dialed in for this fight. He was, he was countering very well. He's he's always been a very sharp striker. Everybody knows that. Um, but in the past, he's been plagued by just kind of inactivity. And he would, you know, he'd let split decisions slip away and stuff. And it, it really seemed like he was just hell bent on not letting that happen this time. So one of the things I, um, I think Till definitely could have done better is that he wasn't really stopping Masvidal from progressing forward. So if he did back him up and Masvidal tried to take that space back, um, it would actually force Till to back up more so than he usually does. And so some answers I think he could have employed would have been front kicks first and foremost. Uh, front kicks you know, are always an effective technique from that open stance in particular with that rear leg. So uh, to go back to this comparison, that's something I think Connor does really, really well. We saw that in the Mendez fight, for instance. So more front kicks. John Jones is another one who is exceptional with the use of front kicks and high kicks. And so that's something I think those are, you know, two examples that Till could probably learn from to kind of incorporate into his game. I think he relies a little bit on the fact that because people respect his power, they do tend to back up. But if they don't, he doesn't really have a great way of forcing them to do so. He's, he's not as able to control the distance when people challenge that. Paul, thoughts on Darren Till? So I agree with everything Justin mentioned so far. And Darren Till has a way of moving, especially when he wants to appear active, to appear as if I'm not just stalking you. You don't know what's going to happen. He moves his hand for the layman like a maestro when he's conducting an orchestra. Like, here it is. It's closer. Here it is. Am I going to strike you? No, just kidding. And it forces you to think. Now, same thing with the line of thought that Justin had where... If he threatened with more tools, with kicks, even if he feints a kick, this is what I like about Israel Adesanya, where he'll give you that shoulder feint, that hip feint, where he'll almost seem, I'm going to jab you, just kidding, and halfway he withdraws. It gives you more things to worry about. And we saw Masvidal do this, where he gave you different looks, like, I'm going to shoot in, here's a real shot, I'm going to go for an overhand, just kidding, here's a kick. And... You could see Till having to react split second. And sometimes he countered it, but sometimes he didn't. Yeah, the thing about Till that I noticed is he has the volume of a counter striker, right? He kind of fights, like you said, Connor, where Connor almost like lures you to lead and then he counters off of you. 
But even though Till kind of has that footwork and he waits and he doesn't throw a lot out there, he seems to still do better, just low volume leading. When he has to start backing up and he really has to truly counter, he doesn't seem to do as well. Like he's been caught like that against Steven Thompson, against Jorge Masvidal this time around, and also against Tyron Woodley. So he seems to be somebody who has a style where he can't capitalize on that other aspect that you would think he would do well, which is the counter, which I think he feels like that is a part of his game, but it's not quite sharp enough yet. And I think the key to the counter is you have to be able to read the other opponent's movements really well. And I think especially against the Tyron Woodley, and then now at this time again, he has a really hard time figuring out what they're going to do, especially he has a hard time differentiating like an overhand or some kind of strike versus a takedown because both of them did like this stutter step where it looked like they were going to take a penetration step. So it almost looked like he was just ready to push them away with his reach because that's the other thing. He's so long that he's used to always relying on his reach like John Jones style for a lot of his defense, but he misread it. So he gets caught like with his hands out trying to see if they're going to bull rush in or something like that. So it's like two things. Uh, He's not quite sharp enough. Maybe in Muay Thai, he was really good at reading what was going to happen, but he can't differentiate the takedowns from the strikes as well. And secondly, his defense relies so heavily on that John Jones style long stiff arming of his opponents that also uh, leaves them very open. Justin, what did you think about Jorge Mazadal? So I thought Mazadal, like I said, looked really dialed in, really sharp. He's always been a very technical striker. Uh, and he came out very aggressive for this fight. And I, I thought he looked outstanding. Definitely the biggest challenge for Masvidal was going to be, how do I close the distance? You, Till is so much bigger than him. He obviously has to respect the power. So it's not as simple as just walking in, obviously. And he seemed to have some good answers for it. The first, like I said, was knowing Till's style. When he does try to draw him in, he was going to plant his feet and he was going to counter with combinations. Um, Until to your point, I think that's quite right. So some people, uh, a lot of us will differentiate between maybe proactive striking and reactive striking. But even within reactive striking, some some folks like to differentiate between uh, like a draw reactive and a true reactive, you know. Till is very good in this draw reactive space where I'm going to apply pressure, I'm going to force a reaction that... I'm going to force a reaction that I'm that I can probably determine ahead of time what you're likely to do and then I have my my go-to counters for it. But when he's forced to actually make reads to your point, he's less effective and, and I think we saw that. And so Masvidal was very effective uh, when he would plant his feet and counter combinations. He was also good about he looked to catch kicks, I think was something he seemed to to be looking for, and he would immediately counter. He would catch a kick and counter with punches right away. He was just very committed to fighting in close proximity, which is what you have to do against someone with that much reach, and he was very effective at it. So catching kicks was a big one. Something he also looked for, which seemed to be a theme for the night, given that we had so many open stance matchups, is he would throw an overhand right and he would use that to disguise the fact that he was switching stances into a southpaw stance, at which point he would fire another overhand right except from a southpaw stance. And so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the final combination actually resembled that and then followed up with a left hook. And so that is something he definitely seemed to look for too, um, transitioning to the close stance to, to further close that distance. Now... Mazdal hasn't fought in a long time, like over a year, right? 500 days. So did you think he looked 
kind of wild at the opening stanza, maybe the first two, three minutes. Yeah, I definitely thought he had some nervous energy being out for as long as he was. So um, maybe his plan to deal with that was to just blast right through it in that opening exchange. And then, of course, as soon as uh, he fouled uh, Till, that resulted in, okay, well, there goes that. I have to kind of start this over. And then he got dropped immediately after that. Given, like I said, the fact that he was off balance and... The shot did seem to land clean, but maybe not with as much power as we might expect. I think that kind of also explains why Masvidal went down there. Like I said, having a lot of nervous energy, trying to shake off the cobwebs a little bit. As a coach, could you see at what moment that Masvidal had figured out Till's timing? Or I mean, not even there's a moment. It's really like he was step by step starting to figure out the distancing and the timing. Could you just kind of see that happening in the first round? Yeah, it definitely seemed to be a gradual process throughout the first round. He started to connect more and more, and he started to started to adopt patterns that were working for him. He, he seemed to notice fairly early on that overhand right was going to land and that Till wasn't countering effectively when Masvidal would punch in combination. So he recognized, okay, let's do this. He had some success with single leg entries as well, which... Um, which also worked to kind of confuse Till. And then right before the the final exchange, I think he had actually landed another overhand right right before that. And he at that point, so the, the last two exchanges of the fight, actually, Till reacted very similar, which I think Masvidal actually made a read on, which was when he had countered with combinations in, in close proximity, Till seemed to actually look for something of a plum clinch. He seemed to actually reach his arms out. And because Masvidal countered so effectively, then the very next exchange when Till looked to do the same, Masvidal committed very hard to his strikes and we saw put Till out. It seemed like the first round was also a good study in watching Adaptation live where it looked like actually Till came out having studied Masvidal very well. So he took advantage of that at the beginning because it seemed like Till knew Masvidal better than Masvidal knew Till just at that early going. And then you kind of see that Till isn't adapting or like figuring out what Masvidal is doing in the fight, where Masvidal live is like, okay, this is what you're doing. This is what you like to do. And it seemed like, yeah, by the final minute, it really felt like Masvidal had figured Till out until just didn't have that thing where he's as good at figuring out his opponent as somebody like Jorge Masvidal. I think that's been one of Jorge's uh, strengths his whole fighting career. Paul, Masvidal is one of your favorite fighters. So what did you think about Masvidal in this fight? Yeah, game bread all day. I have always been a fan of Masvidal ever since he debuted on YouTube in the backyard fights. And the thing that I think it's overlooked is the scrambling ability of Masvidal because when he got dropped and Till rushed him and tried to hit him with strikes, Masvidal was having none of it and he scrambled back up and people forget that had it not been for poor grades or maybe a better coach or teachers, he would have gone on to college and wrestled at that level. And from what I hear at the American Top Team training room, he gives all the wrestlers a hard time. And one of the things that both of you mentioned, that nervous energy that Masvidal had, is he would also try to slip and duck under some of Till's strikes. And in the early goings, he would get caught with uppercuts. But once he figured out the timing and once he knew, okay, if I move this way, your go-to is to hit me with this. So I'm going to wait, see what you're going to do. 
and then duck the other way and I'm going to come in with overhands. In the beginning, he would get hit and then go with an overhand. But afterwards, it seemed almost as if he was baiting Till to come backwards. Like, oh, you got me. You got me. Here's an overhand. Oh, just kidding. I got you. And when Masvidal threw that last counter or that last strike, it reminded me of what Tyron Woodley did to Jay Heron. I don't know if it's a ATT proprietary move that he tapped into, but it was reminiscent of something that wrestlers would like to do. Just like, oh, 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 nope, here it is. And just off topic from the fight itself, I really like Masvidal because he's one of those guys, just like the Diaz brothers, where none of the lines seem manufactured or he's thinking about it all day. He's like, I can't wait for somebody to bring up this quip and then I'm going to run with it. Like when he talked about, I hit him with a three-piece and a soda, you could tell he wasn't thinking about what's a funny line I could think of. He just says what's on his mind. And then when he kept calling Leon Edwards a hooligan, it's like, yeah, this hooligan threatened my life. And he just went with it. And if I recall correctly, at the London presser, he sat right next to Leon Edwards. There was no words exchanged. And Leon Edwards was like, oh, I'm going to get into it with Masvidal and get myself a fight for July. But Masvidal doesn't play that. He doesn't have this, oh, I'm going to fight this guy strategically in April. And it's like, no, if you want to fight, we could do it now, as Leon Edwards found out. So for those of you who don't know what Paul is talking about, there was a kind of a behind-the-stage altercation, right, with Jorge Masvidal and Leon Edwards, where Masvidal was being interviewed. Leon Edwards came and interrupted him, and then they kind of got into a fight. But it was really like more of... Leon Edwards approaching Masvidal with some intent. It was really dark. You can't really tell what's happening. Masvidal hits him three times so quickly and then gets separated. And uh, so it'll be interesting if that leads to a future matchup. But I think Jorge wants to just put that aside and he wants bigger fights. I think part of the reason why Jorge doesn't fight that often is because, like you kept saying at the end of the fight, look at my body of work. Um, He's fought a lot. So he doesn't want to take any fights, probably people below him. He wants to take somebody equal or higher. And uh, I think that's why he's willing to sit out. And he doesn't care if somebody below him in the ranks is calling him out. Yeah, I mean, to that point, Masvidal's just been so underappreciated for so long. And when you look at his resume and you see how many times he's been on the wrong end of a you know razor-close split decision or unanimous decision, his resume could very easily look drastically different than it does. He's always been competitive with these elite fighters. So I think, you know, he's getting up there a little bit in age now. And I think he's at a point where he's probably just over it. He's like, we're either, you know, I'm only taking elite fights. I'm not messing around. I don't care about the drama. I don't. And so we see him react, you know, perhaps without thinking so much because he's just, he's at that stage of his life, frankly. I was very impressed by his pacing in this fight. He looks sharper than he has in a long time. Maybe ever. This is the best Jorge Masvidal I've ever seen. In two things. First is variety. The number of attacks he was using and the number of feints he was using. So Till didn't know what was happening. And secondly, the pace changes. Like in this fight, he was going from fast to slow, fast to slow, backing up, letting Till lead to him pressuring. Just kind of like this almost like lulling uh, Darren Till into this false sense of security because he would really slow down, go really fast. He started out really fast. He slowed down. He would speed up, slow down. And that's also how he caught him at the end where it was like a period of 
Masvidal moving very slowly, kind of backing up, and then he just exploded again. That was another aspect that Till couldn't kind of keep up with is this kind of constant switching of pace, fast to slow, fast to slow. What I was impressed with wasn't just in the tool set of the moves I'm going to hit you with, but also the speed was also variable. And I hadn't seen him use that before. So that was another impressive thing. Now, before we move on to the next fight, having done these now quite a bit, I've noticed that we don't have to do too much grappling breakdowns, Paul, because we only do like the big main event fights or the top draw fights. And there isn't that much grappling anymore in these fights. Have you noticed this, that like these main event fights in the UFC in particular, or the big draw fights, maybe they're not always main event, but they're like in the top three or top four main card fights. There isn't that much ground fighting anymore. That's very interesting. I mean, there have been a couple exceptions, obviously, like um, Tyron Woodley and Kamaru Usman recently. Yes. There's a lot of grappling. Connor and Habib, there was a lot of grappling. But that is an interesting point. Because I was thinking about it. If we were to break down all the prelim fights, there would be a lot of grappling. And I wonder if like later on the game plans start changing. Do you think it's this rise of anti-wrestlers? Meaning not that they're against wrestling, but it might be easier. Now you can correct me or expand on this, Justin. Uh, fighters learning how to avoid being taken down as opposed to being efficient on the ground. Because if I had to learn really effective wrestling, how long would I need? Three years, four years? But how do I avoid getting taken down? Uh, that might be a six months to a year training. So it's a different workshop, but it gets me to where I need to be, which is being a top level fighter. Yeah. And then in general, too, even when people do get taken down, we're definitely in a period now where the priority is clearly getting back up. There are very few truly effective guard players these days in the UFC anyway. There are some, of course, but it's definitely not a strategy a lot of people are looking for these days. And so you do see a pretty huge emphasis on just getting back to the feet. And and more specifically, uh, one type of getting back to the feet, which is pretty much exposing your back, you know, going to four posts and standing up, which is is basically the fastest way to learn how to get up. In my opinion, it's the worst way to get up. But you definitely, I would say that characterizes most of uh, recoveries from the bottom position in, in elite MMA right now. And so given that, I think a lot of people are recognizing that if you aren't truly effective at pinning, if you're not, for instance, we'll, we'll probably get into this with some of the other fights, but um, someone like Habib or Ben Askren, who's so effective at getting wrist control and things like this, where they're going to make it very difficult for you to get back to your feet. We don't see that with too many people these days. And so I think part of that strategy is recognizing I'm going to have to work this hard to get a takedown. And then I should probably be, be aware of the fact that I'm unlikely to hold them down because I haven't put in the time to really get good at pinning people. So what do I want to put all this energy in to get a takedown that I'm not even going to be able to finish? So I, if I'm not mistaken, there was uh, there were one, one or two takedowns in the main event. But I, I want to say Masvidal had a single leg at some point, but Till probably got right back up. And Till's a big guy. Obviously, he's going to be tough to keep down. But, you know, everybody's wrestling is you know, pretty good at this point at, at that level. And so to be able to hold them down is going to be tough. So I do think given how many things you have to work on in MMA at that level, people maybe are starting to recognize if I'm not at that level with my grappling, maybe it's more trouble than it's worth. I'm not saying we'd have an answer today, but it's something that uh, 
I've noticed and for the listeners, something you can kind of notice yourself and kind of watch as it evolves, because maybe that's where we're currently at, at, you know, 2019 for the maybe the last year or so. But then maybe something changes and then, you know, because MMA keeps evolving. Because the other thing I do notice is when it does hit the ground, there isn't much to talk about because it's so clearly dominant by one person. Yeah. So what I think happens is by the time they go for the takedown and fight on the ground, they have the other person so clearly dominated and like mentally broken, then they want to take advantage of the ground when they know that it'll be much easier. And you also look at Max Holloway and Robert Whitaker, who are strikers and don't have traditional grappling backgrounds. But once they get taken down, they either have good enough jujitsu to stab off a lot of attacks or they're experts at getting back up. So that way they don't have to spend a lot of time on their backs or scrambling for position. I think it's what uh, John Danaher, right? He would call wrestle boxing or shoot boxing. It seems like a lot of that right now. It's that kind of shooting just to get that in their head and then a lot of boxing and just striking, but not so much wrestling jujitsu. Right. Yeah, I think... I mean, this might be an exaggeration because I haven't thought it through, but I, I, I guess uh, I feel as though jiu-jitsu has never been less emphasized than it is currently. There are very few people who seem to, at this point in time, really base their game around being effective with jiu-jitsu, whether that means positional dominance, whether that means being effective with submission attacks. There aren't too many people right now really bringing that to bear inside the octagon. Actually, you used to see this a lot more, right? The head MMA coach, like eight years ago, even five years ago, used to be the jiu-jitsu coach. The jiu-jitsu coach was also the head MMA coach. Now, those same jiu-jitsu coaches who used to be the head MMA coaches, I don't see them around anymore. It's either the MMA coach is a pure MMA guy, or it might be the striking coach, like a Henry Hooft. Like eight years ago, Henry Hoof would have been the striking coach, but he would not have been the head MMA coach. Whereas now the striking coaches have become the MMA coaches. So I wonder if it's, you kind of put me in that line of thought with what you were just saying. Maybe it's happening at the academies where the emphasis isn't as much on the submission ground fighting anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. So because we've discussed them a few times, like uh, another notable exception would be Conor McGregor, who has John Kavanaugh, who's primarily a grappling coach. But then you look at obviously how Conor fights and it's it might as well not be the case because obviously they're not game planning for jiu-jitsu. So that's interesting. I'm going to have to think more about that. Yeah. The next fight we're going to discuss is Leon Edwards versus Gunnar Nelson, which ended with a split decision victory for Leon Edwards. So, Justin, what were your thoughts on Leon Edwards in this fight? And did you agree with the split decision? So, I did agree with the decision. I, I had scored the fight for Leon Edwards. Um, this was another open stance matchup. So, Leon Edwards coming out in the southpaw stance and Gunnar Nelson in the orthodox stance. Um, some things I noticed about Leon Edwards, he's very effective in the clinch, usually. So, against Cerrone, he was very effective in the clinch. And then I think one of the commentators had noted that um, in their interviews with Leon Edwards prior to the fight, he had said that he had noticed Gunnar Nelson tends to drop his hands exiting from the clinch. And that's how we saw him ultimately drop him was a, I believe it was like a left elbow coming out of the clinch. So that definitely seemed like not only part of his game plan for this particular fight, but in my opinion, something he just does pretty well. 
Um, this was an interesting matchup because both guys are obviously well-rounded, but this was more or less a traditional striker versus grappler kind of matchup. And Gunnar Nelson was actually effective with takedowns early on. He did secure a takedown in the first round, but more to the point about how people are getting up and how people are pinning these days. Um, Leon Edwards, I thought, did a very good job of not creating back exposure. That's a big part of Gunnar Nelson's game plan traditionally is he's going to secure a takedown. And then when you do expose your back to get up, he's going to take the back where he's quite effective with finishing. What Leon Edwards did is he tried to sit up using his hands as posts and get his back against the fence. And he did so while also keeping an overhook, which allowed him to create a little bit of back exposure without actually having his back threatened because of that overhook. Now, in doing so, if I recall correctly, he had a right arm posted and he had a left overhook. What Gunnar Nelson did not do is attack that right arm post. And so that's something, back to my previous point, that uh, folks like Ben Askren or Habib Nurmagomedov, they do exceptionally well is they're always fighting your posts. And so both of those people tend to favor actually inside wrist control. And this was a very good opportunity for Gunnar Nelson to do so, but he didn't. Instead, he decided to fight the hips, which allowed Leon Edwards to keep that post, which inevitably saw him not only get back to his feet, but then counter with a takedown of his own, which but there, I believe there were two takedowns from Leon Edwards in this fight. Both times seemed to genuinely surprise Gunnar Nelson. I don't think he was really prepared for that. He obviously can wrestle, but by the time he was uh, applying his defense in the wrestling department, it was kind of a little late because he was not anticipating a fight in that area, I think. Paul, what did you notice about Leon Edwards? So the thing I really like about Leon Edwards as a fighter is he seems to be able to study you, break you down, and stick to game plans very well. I think a lot of people slept on his fight versus Cowboy because they thought, well, who's this welterweight? I've never heard of him. He's from across the pond. And even though other people have beaten Cowboy more impressively, like Masvidal, he knocked that Cowboy in the second round. But the way Edwards dismantled Cowboy in the clinch at range with kicks, it was surprising because he really looked like he studied what makes Cowboy the fighter he is, where his weaknesses are, and where he could be exploited. And he seemed to do the same thing to Gunnar Nelson, where I know where your strengths are. I know what I need to do in order to win. Now, he's not going around knocking people out or submitting them or ground and pounding them, but he's doing enough to where when you're fighting Leon Edwards, you think this is what I'm going to do. Oh, he has an answer. What if I do this? Oh, oh, well, I wasn't expecting you to do that. So people might find out while they're in the fight, which is always too late, that, oh, I didn't have an answer prepared for this or I don't have a backup plan in order to counter this. So it'll be interesting to see who they match up Leon Edwards with in the future because it's always fun to watch him break down an opponent and see, well, what's he going to do? He's on a seven-fight win streak now, I believe. So him versus Santiago Ponzinibbio mm. might be a fun fight to watch because both of them, I don't want to say have similar styles, but given that welterweight rankings where they're similarly ranked would be a treat. Leon Edwards is he's one of those kind of few fighters who is good at every aspect of the MMA fight, right? He's good at takedowns. He looks good, pretty good on the ground. He looks good striking. So he adapts to his opponents very well. And it's not always, but in this fight, he did remind me of Daniel Cormier a bit, where he lulled his fighter into this clinch fight. And 
you lull them into thinking, oh, we're going to pummel now. We're pummeling for underhooks. This is the game we're playing now because he got you into that game. But there were several times where Nelson was pummeling for that underhook and he was winning that fight. He's like, nope, I'm going from checkers to chess because it's MMA. We don't have to subscribe to one set of rules, right? So Nelson believed that they were wrestling and he was trying to beat him in that wrestling positional dominance. And he's like, I'm not wrestling anymore. I'm going to elbow you now. So that happened several times where Nelson was swimming for that underhook and it looked like he was going to win. And because Edwards gave up on it and would just elbow him. And that's how he caught him and how he dropped him in one of the rounds. So his ability to adapt to his opponents and play against their weaknesses. I'm really impressed with that. Now, with that considered, I would think he's a very adaptive, high IQ fighter. In some ways, he is, like the strategy came up with. But there was other times where his ego got the better of him, it seemed like, where, yes, you can beat Nelson on the ground in certain aspects, especially when you're on top, but that's only going to last so long, right? We saw Brazilian cowboy Oliveira tried to do the same thing, and it's like, you're going to beat him on the ground only so long, right? Unless you're Damian Maya. And so it got the better of him. And Gunny ended up taking him down or reversing the position and mounting him. Justin, what did you like and what did you not like about Gunnar Nelson in this fight? Yeah, so one thing that I did like that is consistent throughout uh, Nelson's career is that in contrast to some of the earlier styles we were talking about, Gunnar Nelson is quite effective with feints, particularly his level changes and his in and out movement. It's very difficult to tell when he's going to spring in and close that distance. We definitely saw this with Brandon Thatch, for instance, where Thatch had a really difficult time reading when he was going to come in and you know clocked him, I think, with a left hook maybe. So Gunnar Nelson was still very effective with that throughout this fight. In the third round, for instance, I think he... It ended up with him landing a right hand, getting a takedown, and even mounting Leon Edwards. It was just a little too too little too late. In the earlier rounds, he was still very effective with it, which is why they ended up in the clinch so often, in my opinion, is because Leon Edwards did have a difficult time knowing when Gunnar Nelson was going to explode in. So he was definitely implementing his game plan very effectively to, to that point and even securing takedowns sometimes. But... His pinning was less effective than than maybe we've seen it in the past. And then he it definitely did not seem like he had anticipated Leon Edwards trying to counter wrestle. And once that once Edwards had seen that he had had success there, he definitely went back to it over and over. So Gunnar Nelson, the, the best thing I think he did was his fainting was on point and it allowed him to close the distance and get the fight where he wanted. Surprisingly, he just wasn't as as effective in that space, even though that is what he was looking for. Paul, thoughts on Gunnar Nelson? I really like Gunnar Nelson as a fighter, and there's not too much more to add in regards to his strengths than what Justin said. I think where Gunnar might struggle and has traditionally struggled is when his A plan doesn't seem to unfold, he doesn't have a good enough answer to come back with it. He'll just go back to it and he'll say, let me... I'll try this faster. Maybe I'll just shoot a little bit with more power or more force as opposed to, well, let me try something a little different. Let me switch stances. Let me try to hit you with a counter. It seems to be more of the same. And I don't know if it's a problem that he develops in the gym or if they don't drill enough things like, hey, by the way, if this happens, then we're going to need to figure out some counters or they just say, well, just keep doing the same thing over and over and then hopefully it'll work itself out. Now, Leon Edwards himself is a very low volume fighter, but 
Gunnar Nelson is one of the lowest volume fighters in the UFC. I looked at his stats and I think he absorbs four strikes every minute, but hits two strikes every minute. So he's hitting you twice every minute and you're going to hit him four times every minute. That makes it really hard for him to win a decision unless he's dominating every round on the ground. So how this leads into a long-term problem is, especially in this fight, even though it seemed pretty clear he was losing, he never changes his sense of urgency. He never changes his output. I was like, okay, now he's going to turn it up, right? He's going to start throwing more punches. He's going to just start revving it up. And he's going to look for that knockout, look for that finish something. He doesn't. Whether it's the first minute or the last minute, whether he's, he's winning or he's losing, it seems like his pace is going to remain that, the same way. And uh, that's unfortunate because there's a lot of things about him that's good. But what made him so good and what brought him this far is almost like he's a throwback fighter, which is instead of focusing on that striking wrestling aspect, he's so focused on the wrestling ground fighting aspect. So you could kind of beat him up on the feet or at least out volume him. And also his ground fighting is almost a throwback because to your point, Justin, his wrestling. Now a lot of fighters know you got to break the other guy down. You got to break his post down, hand fight him on the ground. whereas. Nelson is still kind of using the stuff that people were doing like five years ago, which is knee pinching and like picking up their knees so they can't get up, which was kind of innovative in MMA. Like, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, we're like, oh, shit, they're getting that weird thing where the opponent is sitting up and you're pinching their knees and mounting their knees. Right. I remember the first time I started seeing that. And then after I saw it once more and more people were doing it and now people are doing that plus hand fighting. But Gunny was still kind of doing that old school, just knee pinch. I mean, it's not that old school. It's not like UFC one days, but it is from like UFC six years ago. And that's the thing. MMA keeps evolving so quickly. So what used to work for him so much to get the number of victories that he has, somewhere in there, MMA has evolved. And he's not evolving as quickly as MMA. And secondly, that killer instinct, like I'm down, I got to figure out a way to win. It seemed like he also lacks that. Yeah, so I, I agree with a lot of those points. I think, so I, I see a lot of similarities between Nelson and Damian Maya. So it was very interesting when they matched up, of course. They both like to, you know, use single legs or double legs, push you up against the fence. They try to secure some sort of takedown. They usually, I think part of Nelson's weakness in pinning his opponents comes from the fact that he ultimately doesn't want to pin them. He wants you to try to get back up. He wants to take your back while you're doing so. And so when Leon Edwards was getting up without exposing his back, it really caused a dilemma for Nelson who recognized that this is really where I want to be. I'm just not seeing the opportunities I'm used to seeing. And so like with Maya, one of the things I think his grappling lacks is also uh, dynamic submission attacks. And so he's very effective on the back, like I said, but he's really not that effective in, in most other areas. And so we definitely saw this in the closing seconds when he had secured full mount, I think with close to a minute left when he had done it, and he didn't really even try any attacks. It didn't seem like he had a, a go-to attack from full mount that he would feel particularly comfortable with, nor did he seem that comfortable striking from there while remaining in the position. And so like every fighter, he, he has some holes. And even though he's such an effective and accomplished grappler, I do think those are some areas where he can really use some improvement. I see that same thing in the clinch. And actually to your point, Maya, 
they're both just in the clinch, just grappling mode. They don't think enough about striking. Like, I need to hit this person from the clinch. Maybe that'll open up other things. And same thing from the mount. You're like, he hit him a little bit, but it seemed like he just wanted to cook him. You know, in jiu-jitsu, you call it cooking your opponent. And he was just taking his time. But it's like, dude, you have a minute left. You don't have that much time. But he was moving like he thought he had a lot more time. I mean, he was doing things. He was creating wedges. He was trying to break Leon Edwards' grip. But it didn't seem like a panicking fighter. Like, I got to figure out something, you know? Yeah, in my opinion, that's that's an essential skill that every grappler should have is kind of, you know, a few of what we might call Hail Mary attacks. You know, if to have some sort of, for instance, some sort of leg attack, some sort of maybe rolling guillotine attack, something that's a little less conventional that doesn't come from, okay, in order to get this submission, I'm going to take you down, I'm going to pass your guard, I'm secure this position. You need to have something... What if none of those things happen? How can we still attack from a position like this? And to your point, it doesn't seem like he's really willing to go outside of his normal game plan and entertain an attack like that. When Sam said if they learned to strike from the clinch, it would be a total game changer. I think if they studied or got the chance to train with either Damian Maya or uh, Gunnar Nelson had the opportunity to train with uh, Habib or Daniel Cormier, it would add so much more dimension to their game because now opponents are going to be worried at every level. It's like, okay, I might get hit here or clinched, or I might get taken down, or he might let go and hit me from the clinch position or when we disengage because now you're scary at every level and there's nowhere where I think I might be safe. Tony Ferguson to that point, very effective in, in so many positions at opening up front headlocks to inverted katagatamis, stuff like that, where you could be in the clinch with them and think, okay, maybe now we're grappling and striking. But even then, you're probably less aware that there are submission threats there. And so in, in Ferguson is another one who's also very effective off of his back. And it's it's not like he has 20 submissions from these areas, but he has at least one from every area. And that's something I would like to see a lot more. To break down that clinch fight between Leon Edwards versus Gunnar Nelson, it really looked like a repeat of Henry Cejudo versus Mighty Mouse 1, where Henry Cejudo, once they clinched, was all in on just wrestling. So he was trying to clamp down into a hip-to-hip position and just standing really tall, upright, hip-to-hip. And that's when he got hit in the liver or his kidney or something and got dropped. And that's what Gunny was doing the whole time, just standing really erect, trying to get that hip-to-hip connection. And he was like, almost like, I'm willing to eat all your body shots just for me to get this position. He was so fixated or single-minded. And that served him well because it gets him to the finish. But then what happens when plan A isn't working? Now, from a coach's perspective, there's like a minute left. Your fighter isn't going in for the kill. Like, what can you do? Or is all of this answered in the lead up in the training camp where you're like, you got to have some stuff in the back pocket where you're willing to give up position just to win the fight? Yeah. So I, I think basically uh, the latter is is the answer in that you have to have something prepared. And so it's one thing, let's say we, we, I've been in this position as a, as a corner where your fighter didn't do enough wrestling in camp. And then here we are round three when they need it. They know the takedowns. They've done the takedowns before. They could teach the takedowns. 
but because they haven't been doing it regularly, they lack the confidence to do it when it really counts. And therefore, they're just simply not willing to try that. And so that might be the case with Gunnar Nelson, who found himself full mount, but with such little time where he thought, when was the last time I arm locked someone from here? When was the last time I went for this? And he just might not have felt all that comfortable. So from a coaching perspective, leading up, that's something I always try to be very aware of is, okay, here's plan A and here's even plan B, but let's say our first five game plans aren't working. We have to have at least something ready to go. And so one fighter that I've always been really fascinated by is uh, Husimar Pajares. And we saw Pajares obviously brought one skill that was so underrepresented in MMA being the heel hook that even though fighters have seen heel hooks and they've done heel hooks, they're not used to going against someone who has mastery of a heel hook. And we saw Pajares, he didn't need any, you know, really mm, particularly complicated way of getting into it. He would often do the same thing. He would put his opponents against the fence, look for a double leg or single leg, which he would love to get. But if he doesn't, well, he'll just pull Ashigarami from there and threaten you with a heel hook and usually finish you. Those are not particularly complicated transitions. It is something that I think should be in every fighter's arsenal. If knowing up against the fence is a position we're likely to be in, we should have striking threats. We should have grappling threats in the form of takedowns. And we should also have submission threats. And it just seems like there are so many areas these days that people simply lack any real submission threat. And I think it's it's a problem. It could very, very much so be improved. Actually, uh, Polaris is a good example of this where we think if somebody's a ground fighter and a jiu-jitsu guy, it's a monolith. They all have the same style, right? And you could kind of make an argument that a lot of them do, like Gunnar Nelson and Damian Maya have a very similar style. Actually, that's the problem, right? There isn't enough uh, people like Pajares, which is Pajares doesn't just do leg locks. He's done just as many arm locks. And I think he catches some guillotines too. But what he doesn't do a lot of is rear naked chokes. But the majority of everybody else in MMA now, strictly rear naked chokes. They will give up every other possible submission on their path to the rear naked choke because it's the most positionally dominant and it's very high percentage. But it's, it's not taking into account the amount of time you have. So people like Damian Maya, like when was the last time he caught an arm bar, right? Like for them to add those things back in, especially when time is running out, I think that's also something to consider. Sam, when you mentioned the time aspect, it reminded me of a story that Crone Gracie talked about when he faced Gary Tonin. And he was down and he knew it because Gary Tonin was giving him the match of his life. And he says, you have one minute left. And he recalled all the times that he did 30 second drill, 45 second drills in his academy. And he says, if you're down, this is what you should be doing. And he went ham and he attacked Gary and he got him the submission with the last few seconds. So I wonder if that kind of training isn't being done often enough where it's just thought of as an afterthought. So people treat it as an afterthought of, okay, by the way, if you have 30 seconds left, let's work on some drills so you're good at it. As opposed to, hey, this is a very realistic scenario that can happen. So let's drill for 30 seconds left. What are you going to do? 30, 45 seconds left, one minute left. And you should have something for each one for a 30 second, for a 45 second, for a minute. Because if it's a minute, you might try for a blast double into something, into a takedown or for an overhand. If it's 30 seconds, like... That's all strikes. You have to figure out some type of striking attack that you can do in 30 seconds that could win. And I remember when Vanderlei Silva fought Michael Bisping, he said he waited until the last 30 seconds to blitz him. 
because he knew that one Bisping and opponents in general would slow down. And when it spikes up, one, it looks like he's winning the entire round when he might be kind of in the middle. And two, the unintended side effect is when you're having to defend that quickly, it spikes up your adrenaline. So in that rest round, you're never really resting. Your heart rate is still through the roof. Because who was it? Frank Shamrock said he did that to Tito. So he turned it up in the last 30 seconds. So when Tito goes back to his corner, he's still tired. And Frank's like, I'm, I'm recovering. I'm okay. And then by the last third, fourth round, Tito was exhausted because one, he had to stay active and he wasn't ready to have his rest minute taken. He was like, uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. Yeah, it, and especially what you were saying about those those short rounds, I think are very important. So when I used to run an MMA academy back in Illinois, I had a, a, a pretty big amateur fight team. And so with amateur fights, you're talking about three minute rounds. And so I used to have them do one minute grappling rounds all the time because the basic premise was, okay, we have a three minute round. It's very unlikely that you're going to get a takedown in the first few seconds. It's going to take a little bit of time. So let's assume you have one minute to work and let's get really good at submitting people within a one minute time frame. And it's, it doesn't seem like a lot of people do train that way, to your point. It seems like more of this cooking strategy, like you alluded to, um, seems to better characterize what most people look to do on the ground. I think if you look at fighters and look at the amount of amateur fights they have, just like in boxing, it affects their style. So a lot of the guys who have a ton of jujitsu, they don't do that many amateur fights and they get into pro pretty quickly, right? Yeah, that's a but great I point. But I think people who come from amateur, they're much more used to higher volume. Mm -hmm. Just like you see in boxing. People who had, you know, prestigious amateur backgrounds like Olomu Cheko or, or other people like that, old school fighters, they just put out a lot of volume and there's a lot more movement. And if you even if you just watch an amateur fight, right, like, like Hamo, it's like nuts oh, for it's three chaos. minutes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if it was five minutes, it wouldn't be like that. And I think that teaches you that sense of urgency. Like I could do a lot in a minute where if you've only fought five minutes or you're used to 10 minute grappling matches, it creates a different type of mindset and a different type of killer instinct where you still might have a killer instinct, but it's not MMA killer instinct. Let's go to our final match. Volkan Uzdemir versus Dominic Reyes. And it was Dominic Reyes winning a split decision over Volkan Uzdemir. Justin, what were your thoughts about Uzdemir? So I thought this was a really interesting fight for one particular reason. Given that they're in an open stance, again, we had three open stance matchups. What you see over and over again is generally when we have a southpaw versus orthodox matchup, the lead hands don't play a big role because they're usually occupied with grips. Meaning if I'm a southpaw and I'm fighting someone who's orthodox, what I usually look to do is use my lead hand to tie up their lead hand because given the short distance between the two of you, I don't like to rely on reactions in terms of head movement and things like this because I'm so close to my opponent's lead hand. So what I do, which is what a lot of people do, is I generally will hand fight with my lead hand to set up my rear hand, my rear kick. And it doesn't mean I don't also use that to set up my lead hand, but at most points, I remain connected to my opponent with some sort of grip. What Uzdemir does more so than almost anybody else is if you notice, Uzdemir's fists are closed almost at all times, which is highly unusual at this level. Most people will have more of an open hand position, maybe something in between, but it's very rare for 15 minutes to just maintain closed fists, which is what Uzdemir primarily does. This 
matchup was so interesting because that's what Reyes did as well. So these two were almost never connected via any sort of grips. And so it was sort of an ugly matchup because they're kind of just clashing into each other at all times. Um, and this, this is something that, you know, has plagued Southpaws forever, like going back to boxing. So I, I had the very fun opportunity at one point to actually go to Customato's gym in Catskill, New York. And one of the trainers, when he saw that I was a Southpaw said, oh, you know what Cuss used to say about Southpaws? And I was like, what? He said, throw them all in the ocean. Because it's, it's sort of ugly when you watch an open stance matchup in boxing, particularly because it's, it's harder to, you can't really establish a grip because you have boxing gloves on, right? Um, I think there's a reference to this in one of the Rocky movies too, about it being like awkward style. Nobody likes watching Southpaws. And so in MMA, we have a much better answer, which is open hands. You could kind of occupy that hand and really keep things a lot cleaner. With this particular matchup, neither one of them did that, and it resulted in something of an ugly contest. Um, it was a very close contest, obviously, and in split decision. I actually scored the fight for Uzdemir. How'd you guys see it? I did also for Uzdemir. I thought Reyes did enough, but if Volkan won, I wasn't going to be like, what? That's a robbery. It's more like, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was clearly very, very close fight. No one could claim robbery one way or the other. I looked it up afterwards. The second round was like, which way could it have gone? And it was so close, right? So I looked it up and Reyes had outstruck him by just two strikes. That's how close it was. And were they meaningful? Maybe they were two leg kicks and Ustamir landed more head punches. I don't know, but it was that close. It was such a close, ugly fight. It, it really was. And here's another case where effective striking of course one of the one of the scoring criteria is is really not all that well defined right so what is effective striking and so this was definitely one of those contests where the judges had their work cut out for them in determining what is effective striking in this case are we more concerned with volume or you know is it it's a quantity versus quality matchup basically the way i saw it it seems like uh not by much but it does seem like reyes had the quantity but in from my perspective ozimir clearly had the quality. He seemed to definitely land more meaningful strikes, particularly to the head. And it seems back to the scoring criteria about effective striking, it had a clearer effect in that it would force Reyes to back up, to cover up. It definitely seemed like Ozdemir was implementing his game plan more so than Reyes. That being said, it was a very close contest, albeit ugly. Yeah. If we go by the significant strikes, yes, Reyes won. But if we go by a different criteria, whose game plan was winning, it seemed clear that Uzdemir's game plan was better and was more dominant. But when it works and you still don't win, maybe you could have come up with a little bit better game plan. Sure. Now, I, I do think there were things that were working pretty well for him. So Reyes, of course, has a very good left kick, particularly that left round kick. And he has a good left hand as well. And it seemed like Uzdemir had that well scouted. And so he had a couple of answers for that. With the kick, it definitely seemed like he was banking on catching it and either countering or catch, catching it and using it to set up takedowns. And then he also, not unlike Masvidal, whom we mentioned, was uh, even more so really relied on using the overhand right to disguise his stance switch, following it with an additional overhand right from the southpaw position. That is something he did basically from bell to bell. It seemed like something he was really prepared for. Additionally, something that always people always talk about with open stance matchups is that you want to dominate outside foot position. This is something that you know most people who don't even train striking probably can recite having heard from commentators and such. 
This is not something that I disagree with necessarily, but I don't find it to be an essential quality of being in an open stance matchup. And in my opinion, this this particular fight demonstrated that. I think Uzdemir, rather than looking for the outside, was actually looking for the inside position. He was even countering with inside slips as well. So um, when Reyes, for instance, would throw a round kick, that would you know, essentially force Ozdemir to the inside position, which he looked to counter. So that was something I thought was pretty interesting. So there's a lot of rules that people hear, but there's a lot of contrary rules. Like one of those things is having your foot on the outside, having the outside position. But another thing I've heard, which contradicts that is I've heard if you're a southpaw, that you should lean more to your left, which it would seem like you would lean into their power hand. Have you heard this before? But then it puts you in a better position to like maybe... Uh, your your punches get there first. Uh, you're able to move in and out faster, or maybe because they overcompensate, you slip on the inside and land. I've heard this more in boxing. Yeah, so it's something that my trainers will sometimes do. But if you're not quick enough and you're more of a technical slow pace, they say, like, don't do that. You're going to get caught. But if you have the speed or the youth or even the chin, they say, oh, this is a strategy worth doing. But you run into the risk of, a Cody Garbrandt situation where, yeah, you could surprise the guy if you're quick enough, but it also puts you at that 50-50 chance of getting caught. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of those things that we kind of just, you know, recite as dogma without critically analyzing and then seeing, does this apply to every situation? And those are, you know, two points right there that don't apply to every situation. So for instance, one of the things the, that we did see in some of these fights, which is and always a consequence of open stance matchups, is um, if if I'm looking to take my opponent down and they take the outside, outside position, well, that's great for me for setting up double legs. Now, traditionally, we don't set up double legs from open stance, like in wrestling or anything on the outside, but with a fence involved, yeah, there's nothing at all wrong with setting up a double leg from the open stance position, in which case inside foot position would be exactly the thing you're looking for. So yeah, that's something I would like to, I, I'm kind of surprised at this point that people still don't analyze more critically and kind of just continue to recite. And it's again, it's not that that as a general insight is incorrect. It's just not an all or nothing rule. I think because so many people learn their strategy from the commentators. Absolutely. And we got rid of uh, Mike Goldberg from the UFC, which was kind of helpful because we have more, you know, uh, thoughtful and more knowledgeable analysts now and play by play guys. But we still have Joe Rogan. Right. And we were talking about what Gunnar Nelson or I was saying about how he's kind of a throwback. It seems like Joe Rogan's knowledge of MMA is still from like eight years ago or 10 years ago. So he still kind of says these kind of things that may no longer apply because it's so much more advanced now, which is always like, oh, you always circle away from their power hand or you always want outside foot position, which is now nice to have Dominic Cruz or Daniel Cormier in there and kind of like sometimes have to correct him. And sometimes it kind of creates kind of a uh, clashing, kind of awkward commentating uh style sometimes to listen to. You feel kind of awkward because, you know, Joe Rogan doesn't know what he's talking about. And I've seen a lot of now people used to be afraid to criticize Joe Rogan because he has such a huge fan base. But a lot of like uh, MMA commentators, like from heavy hands to uh, Jack Slack, Luke Thomas, they all kind of criticize Joe Rogan. Like Joe, I, I, they always have to put the caveat. They love him because they don't want to be attacked by his fans. But yeah, his knowledge isn't quite there. And I think that's why he's one of those guys who keeps saying these kind of absolutes. 
which no longer apply, which is kind of like old school. It did apply at one time, like Boss Rudin said, you would never jab. And maybe during that era, you didn't jab. Maybe they weren't effective back then. But now you can't say that anymore. I think that's part of that misunderstanding I think is that's the job right. of the commentators. Absolutely agree. And when you mentioned Boss saying don't jab, it's like, yeah, because you went, you were in Pancras and there was no <laughs> point in it. But if people look at Joe Rogan's schedule, when does he have time to continually train, be in the gym, experiment with certain moves? Because he'll strike with somebody every now and then and he has guests over and he hits that machine where he says like, see, I punch really hard or I kick really fast. And for grappling, he'll go once or twice a month, maybe. That's what caused him to take so long to get his black belt because he wasn't able to train consistently. So yeah, he knows more than the average person. But if you had to give a critical analysis of fighters and fighting, his knowledge is a little bit backwards because it's slower. Maybe eight years from now, he'll talk about, yeah, you don't always have to do that. Uh-huh. You don't always have to be it's like, thanks, Joe. Now all I need is a time machine to go back, watch these fights all over again with right. your criticisms now. He's impressive in the plethora of information that he knows nothing about. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> There's a lot of stuff. It's so impressive. He, he could bring on different guests and talk about so many different topics that he knows nothing about. So, uh, Paul, what did you think about Uzdemir? So I thought it was a risk for him to go back to Switzerland and train with his old team, especially on a two-fight skid. And I liked the matchup initially because, okay, if I was Vulcan, I could take out a rising star who is going to be big in the next few years. And if I beat him impressively, I could always go back and be like, eh, I beat him in X amount of seconds or in X round. So why would I need to fight him again? And you never have to rematch them. But from Arreya's standpoint, it was always risky because I didn't think he was ready. Yeah, he beat OSP very convincingly, but Vulcan is still a big step up in competition. Sam, I think you mentioned that Dominic Reyes was training with Team Elevation for this camp. Yeah, he still had uh, Joe Daddy in his corner, but he had trained at Team Elevation for the, the training camp. So I wonder if he focused a lot on conditioning and making sure that he can maintain high volume as opposed to having answers for technical strikes and technical uh, and game planning for Ozemir. And he says, well, I'll just do what I always do. I just need to be able to do it longer and at a higher rate. I actually was impressed with Volkan Ozdemir in this fight more so than his victories. And I actually liked that he stayed at home for this camp because Henry Hooft is very adamant about not game planning. He does not like game plans. He just wants to get his fighters ready in every way. And he just wants them to have killer instinct and just try to blitz and put him out in the, in the first round or whatever. Right. And that's what Uzdemir did a lot of times, but in a lot of the championship fights that the Henry Hooft guys have had other than Usman, it didn't work. So staying in Switzerland, it was clear that he had some kind of game plan coming into this fight. And I think, Reyes is the wrong kind of guy for you to just come out and blitz. That's the same kind of thing that OSP tried. And uh, that's when Reyes seems like he's at his best. Now, against the measured, tactical Volkan Ustamir, Reyes seemed to be struggling. And it just made me think, John Jones is only going to be more of that. So it just made me think, man, he's going to really be struggling against John Jones if he were to fight him right now. Who knows in two years' time? But Volkan did the right thing. He executed the game plan. He was mixing it up. I think what really hurt him is that he does kind of have that drop off. He did a lot better this time because of the game plan where he paced himself. But 
towards the end of the second round and most of the third round, his pace had gone way down. He just wasn't mixing things up anymore. He just looked not super tired, but just tired. And that's the only reason I think Reyes got the split decision victory. Not because what Reyes was doing was so much better than Volkan Ustamir. And the other thing that made me worry about how green Reyes is, isn't that he adapted. It's just that one person's volume dropped off and you stayed the same. And I guess that's where that elevation training kicked in and helped. Using that as a segue, Justin, what did you think about Dominic Reyes in this fight? And what did you think about him in general as a prospect in the light heavyweight division? Yeah, so uh, just yesterday I had rewatched his fight with, yeah, I had rewatched Dominic Reyes' fight with OSP and I was very impressed with him in that fight. Again, he had showed some real danger with his left leg, his left hand. That that does seem to be kind of his bread and butter, but but those skills are quite good. And I was impressed with his volume over time. And I And so for this fight, the thing that impressed me the most with Reyes was definitely his ability to maintain the pace that was set, which was fairly high. So as particularly in the third round, he was still attacking, which is a great sign for a young prospect when, when they are experiencing some adversity throughout the fight to still be firing back deep in the third round is quite impressive. That being said, I did see the fight for Ozdemir. So I was far more impressed by Ozdemir than I was for Reyes. But in terms of... I guess, toughness and stamina. Reyes definitely showed that he can hang in there. But he also, I think, was exposed for his limited tools, I suppose. You know, he does rely primarily on that left leg and that left hand. And his wrestling, while good, I think he does rely a bit on his athleticism. So he he has a habit of stopping takedowns rather late rather than countering them early on with an underhook, wrist control, something like this. He pretty often gets off balance by his opponent's initial attack, but he has really good hips and finds a way to recover. Or if they do take him down, he's very good at getting back to his feet. But those things to me, what I see is someone who is still, who has not quite identified the the finer points of what's going to stop your opponent's offense, but instead is an exceptional athlete. Paul, what did you think about Dominic Reyes? Your boy. Yeah, my boy, but he's still like a boy has a lot of growing up to do. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but Dominic Reyes is unfortunately in a division where there is not a lot of contenders to go around. So if you had to name the top prospects at light heavyweight, it's him, Johnny Walker, and Thiago Santos. And Thiago Santos is coming up from middleweight, just like with Anthony Smith. And maybe we might see an influx of guys from middleweight coming up, potentially Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, guys I can't cut anymore just because they're getting up there in age. But we have to deal with the fact that, well, yeah, they don't have to cut anymore, but they are older. And with Dominic Reyes being so young, I'm worried that they rush him and then he's never the same after because... If you get thoroughly dominated early on, it makes you question your skill set, if you belong. And once people have figured out, like with Vulcan, okay, this is what you do well, this is how I'm going to nullify it, he might not develop the tools to compensate that in time. And then he goes from prospect to dud overnight. And we've seen it before. Look at Cody. Dominic Reyes is impressive to me in that he didn't get discouraged, but he also didn't have like an answer to try to put 
Volkan Ustamir away. Like, I feel like even though he did end up in hindsight, right? He won the decision. I think he should have fought the last round. Like he didn't know he was going to win and try to really put this guy away. Right. Cause yeah, I thought he lost. So I think he should have been fighting like that. Another thing that impresses me is the amount of strikes, like versatility and how sharp he is just on his left side. So with his left leg, similar to John Jones, he could do a lot of things, low kick, push kick, high kick. It has a lot of dexterity and his left hand is pretty sharp. Now with his right hand, right side. Now, if you're going to stay in one stance, you really just need a jab, right? On the right hand. But he switches stances. And he's almost, at least in this fight, when he switches stances, he didn't have much. There wasn't much to fear from. It was more of a different look. But he's mostly single-sided from the left side attack. Now, what made me more concerned about him is also his ability to fight while going backwards. Against pressure, he looked really bad. And that's like a kryptonite in modern MMA where, oh, once I know you can't fight going backwards, so many great fighters have been dismantled once people expose that. And my observation is that a lot of fighters who have that problem, they never get over it. Every fighter who's been exposed with that, they never seem to get over that habit. So what it tells me is that that type of habit is just kind of really ingrained. It's kind of just uh, maybe a personality trait or you've been drilling or fighting like that for way too long. Seems like a coach has to get rid of that as quick as possible. But not to say that Dominic Reyes can't get over that or can't come up with solutions. But it does seem like in MMA currently with the old veterans, it is one of the harder habits to get rid of. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think particularly with with fighters who base most of their game around striking, if you can only strike while going forward and you're ineffective backing up, you've got a problem on your hands. So one simple solution would be is if you're going against someone who's really trying to back you up, if you can at least threaten with clinch attacks, threaten with level changing into takedowns, well, then you're going to be more effective and your opponent is going to be less comfortable just continuing to come forward. We didn't see that from Reyes. And so it looked like Ozdemir, particularly after feeling his power, seemed very comfortable just walking forward. Now, that was ultimately, I think, to his demise because he didn't address a lot of Reyes' strikes. He would more or less absorb them because I don't think he felt particularly threatened by them, but they did score ultimately, and it resulted in him losing a decision. The only other thing I'd add for Dominic Reyes is if he had another threat from the right side, whether it's adding a hook or a roundhouse kick, emulating what Connor does, he would be so much more successful because... He would be able to fend off attacks in the clinch, clinch on his own terms, and know when he wants to engage and when he wants to disengage and he has more threats. That might be a good person for him to emulate. And he would be a terrifying guy, especially with his size and athleticism. So to that point, someone who was particularly effective at this event from the open stance with their lead side was Masvidal. Masvidal did do a good job of continuing a high pace with his jab. He looked for left hooks. He wasn't, as some of the other people were doing, simply relying on that rear side. And I think it was very effective for him and and the others should take note. All right, with that said, Justin, uh, where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram at at Justin Hamilton, just my first and last name, but my first name spelled J-U-S-T-E-N. You can find me on Facebook and I do have a YouTube page, which is also just Justin Hamilton, where I post a lot of free techniques for martial arts, given uh, grappling techniques, striking techniques, and that's about it.